are, let's turn to Matthew chapter 7. Matthew chapter number 7. Of course, many of you know in the last couple weeks we've been through a series uh, called Context. And we've been looking at different verses in the Bible that are typically taken out of context. And what we've done is we've examined maybe how people use them. And then we've gone to the scriptures, we've gone to the Bible, we've seen the context. And I think what we've all discovered is that when we look at verses in their context, they have a whole lot more power than when we just pull them out of context. How many of you have discovered that over the last couple weeks? Man, if we look at the context of these verses, there is some powerful truth there. We may not be able to apply, I can do all things through Christ to our next football game. We can apply to a lot of areas of life that matter a whole lot more than that. I came across a, uh, a picture the other day. And I think it perfectly described what we've been talking about this series. And here's how the, the caption, the picture read. It said, how most people read the Bible. Now, I don't know if you can see it or not. This is a screenshot on a phone app of Matthew 7. And all the rest is scribbled out because no one cares about that, right? But right at the very top, two words are highlighted. And can you guess what those words are? Judge not. Sometimes they even get uh, the uh, next four words, lest ye be judged or that ye be not judged. Matthew 7, 1 is, is the top dog of verses taken out of context. I mean, if you live in 21st century America, you may have never been in a church service in your entire life. You probably have heard, judge not that ye be not judged. How many of you have heard someone use that in that way at some point, right? So, People use it in a lot of different ways. They might say things like, don't judge me. Or say, don't you know the Bible says not to judge? And here's the problem. This verse is just sadly misquoted in a lot of different scenarios. It's misquoted when people are on the defensive, when maybe we bring up what the Bible has to say about certain social issues, whether it be same-sex marriage or abortion or maybe it becomes something that puts them on the defensive when we talk about attending church and being faithful to God's house. Some people might whip out this verse when they get told about their sin and are warned from a friend. It doesn't matter what the situation is. It's just used all the time, isn't it? How many of you raised boys as parents or grandparents have boys in the house? Many of you didn't raise your hand, you were a boy, and so you'll understand this, that all games that boys play have one thing in common. Fighting. Absolutely. And it doesn't matter what era you're in, you could play cowboys, or soldiers, or like my generation, Power Rangers, or something like that. It doesn't matter, it's the same game, it's let's fight, right? It doesn't, I mean, it could be wrestling, it could be boxing, it could be you have swords or bows and arrows. Any game that a boy plays, it has to include that element, fighting. And then when you kind of move past that, it's competition, but it's basically fighting. <laughs> if you've ever been to a Prater household gathering. And I remember playing those type of games as a kid, and uh, those of you, you know, grew up like this, or raised boys, you know what I'm talking about, that in the midst of those battles, uh, as they're fighting, every boy has that secret weapon in their back pocket. 
and it's, it's imaginary, and it's used in every game, but when they start feeling like they're losing, they just say, I got a force field. How many of you know what I'm talking about? The force field, right? It doesn't, hey, it's not visible. That wasn't established in the rules of the game, but they start feeling like they're losing, they got the force field up. And I feel like that, that judge not, let, that you be not judged, in a lot of ways is like, those who don't know the Bible, it's like their Christian force field. Like you're making me feel uncomfortable, I'm bringing out the judge not force field. And, and I, I totally get why people misuse this verse, because if you look at the first two verses, and we're just going to look at those for a second right now, you'll find that it, it sounds like that that's how Jesus meant the verse. Don't judge people. Point blank, like, no exceptions, don't judge people. Look at verse number one. Judge not that ye be not judged. Well, what does that mean? You can study the Greek, whatever, all you want. Here's what it means. Don't judge others, or you're going to be judged. Sounds simple, right? Okay, verse two. For with the judgment ye judge, ye shall be judged. And with what measure ye meet, or give out, it shall be measured to you again. What does verse two mean? Well, the same strict standard you have for judging other people is the same strict standard with which they will judge you. Make sense? Does that seem like what the verses are saying? And the implication there, uh, Jesus wasn't very clear necessarily whether he's talking about God judging you or other people judging you. And I think both apply. If you judge, that's how Luke uses it. Just as God gives, we should give. And just as um, God judges, we should be careful how we judge. So as we judge people, God also takes notice of that and responds to that according to how we do it. So you look at the first two verses, I mean, basically it says, you better not judge people or you're going to get judged. But here's the question tonight. Is that really, really all that Jesus meant when he said those first two verses? And I would say no, and here's, here's, why, here's where people get mixed up. First, they don't read the next four verses. And second, they forget that Matthew 7-1 isn't all that the Bible has to say about judging. I mean, there's a lot of material in here. Don't you think God had some other things to say about judging? And, and here's the fact I want to cover with us tonight before we really get into the message. It's just this simple truth. God is not against judging other people. Plain and si- If you're taking notes, you might write that down. God's not against judging someone else. That, that's not something he's against. And, and I want to look at this definition of the word judge because it's got some negative stigma to it. So let's look at this de- definition. Here's how I would define judge. Did it not show up? There we go. All right. Thought I made a mistake. Judge. It's to find someone guilty of an offense. There's two parts to this. To find someone guilty of an offense and then to issue correction to prevent further offense. How many of you think that describes what judging is? Think of a judge in a court. They're finding someone guilty and they're issuing correction. Now, correction, it could mean discipline, but if you're a parent, listen, you know correction comes in all sorts of forms, right? Right? So just because you're not, you know, behind a stand as a judge, 
every one of us at some point in our life is going to have to give spiritual correction. Because it could be warning, right? Hey, be careful where you're going with that. It, it could be strictly what we mean by correction. Hey, you're doing this wrong, but this is the right thing to do. It could be rebuke, just flat out calling somebody on the carpet for something they're doing, or a form of discipline. So I want to look here just a couple things, because if we look at the Bible, it's very clear that God says in multiple places that as his people, there are times in which we are called upon to give judgment or correction to other people. Let me show you a couple examples. The first I have is that God tells us to judge our children. Amen? Who knows what this world would be if we weren't able to do that? Well, James... uh, Sorry, this is out of Proverbs. I put the wrong reference here. He that spareth his rod hateth his son, but he that loveth him chasteneth him be times. Proverbs 13, 24 says that. The word be times means promptly, meaning don't let your kids get away with stuff without giving them uh, a spanking. God also tells us to judge false teachers. 2 John 10 says this, If there come any unto you and bring not this doctrine... Receive him not into your house, neither bid him Godspeed. Well, if we're going to follow that verse, we, the, the two parts of judging are still in place, right? We have to determine if someone's a false teacher, and then we have to issue some form of response to it. And in this verse it says, basically, don't let him come into your house for a Bible study. You know, if those people knock at your door, the Bible says don't let him into your house for a Bible study. So judge false teachers. Then the Bible says, Judge by rebuking close friends who are in sin. Here's what Proverbs 27 says. Open rebuke is better than secret love. Better are the faithful, better are the wounds, sorry. Faithful are the wounds of a friend, but the kisses of an enemy are deceitful. You know what Solomon's saying there? It's better for someone to rebuke you when you're wrong than for them to suck up to you. So, so the, what the Bible is saying is saying, if, the, if you have someone who's a close friend in sin, you have an obligation from God in the right timing, the right way, which we'll talk about tonight, to correct them, to rebuke them. Are you with me? This may not be popular, like, you know, on talk radio, 21st century America. That's what the Bible says. And we have an obligation to judge people. And then lastly, the church is obligated to judge members who err from the truth. James 5, 19 through 20. Brethren, if any of you do err from the truth and one convert him, let him know that he which converteth the sinner from the error of his way shall save a soul from death, and here's the next part, and shall hide a multitude of sins. What is James saying there? That the church has an obligation when one of their own errs from the truth, is in a lifestyle of rebellious sin, The church has an obligation and is blessed if they do this, if they confront that person who's erring from the truth and try and restore them back into the fold of the church. Does that make sense? So, I mean, I could have pulled out a bunch of other verses, but it's pretty clear God calls us to judge people, to correct them, to issue a form of spiritual correction, to decide if they've done something against God And if we are in the correct position to do so, to verbally warn them, correct, and if it 
in the case of someone under our leadership to evoke some sort of discipline. Are you with me? It's clear. It's in the Bible. <clears throat> but then we look at Matthew 7, and we see the first two verses, and it, it seems to clash, right? Judge not that you be not judged. It seems like it has a sense of finality. But here's what, what Jesus is actually saying. How many of you, um, it's still Wednesday night, so some of you might remember this verse in James where it basically talks about be not many masters. Be careful to ascend to the role of a spiritual teacher because there's a greater sort of accountability that comes with that role. How many of you are familiar with that verse? Be not many masters. That's the same tone Jesus is saying here. He's not saying don't judge ever. What Jesus is saying is close to this. You need to be very careful who you judge. Caution. Um, proceed with caution. Before you judge, before you issue spiritual correction, here's the thought in verses 1 through 6. Don't judge someone else until you've judged yourself. Are you with me? And I, I want to look at this tonight because here's what Jesus is going to do. Verses 1 through 2, he's warning us. He's saying, listen, you need to be careful about judging other people because there are some serious consequences if you get this wrong. How many of you are aware tonight that there are people in this town who will never step foot in a church because someone else judged them? Absolutely. And honestly, in a lot of ways, I don't blame them. How many of you know there are parents that do not talk, or sorry, children who do not talk to their parents as soon as they leave the home because some parent didn't get this right? How many of you know that there are employees that leave workplaces all the time and, work, and employers that experience high turnover because of this very thing? They don't know how to correct somebody the right way. Are you with me tonight that it's pretty important that anybody here who is either now or in the future is going to lead people and be responsible for people needs to get this right? And so here's what Jesus is going to do. He's telling us in these verses um, don't judge someone else until you judge yourself. But I want to give you tonight, from the following four verses after verse 2, three signs that you have not judged yourself. Because you must say, well, what do you mean by judge yourself? I'm going to give you three signs tonight. If you haven't done these three things, you're not ready to issue spiritual correction. And so I hope that the next time you step into your office and are ready to talk to an employee about their behavior, that you've gone through these. Or the next time you sit your kids down, and you're going to issue discipline to your teenager, that you've gone through these. Because here's what Jesus is saying. Go ahead and judge somebody and issue correction because I've told you to, but you better make sure you get these three things right, or somebody's going to get hurt. Are you with me tonight? Here's three signs you have not judged yourself. Number one, you're ignoring your own beam to focus on another person's splinter. Number one, first sign that you've not judged yourself is you're ignoring your own beam to focus on another person's splinter. Look at verses three through four with me. Here's what Jesus said. He's kind of like upset. You can almost tell. He says, and why beholdest thou the moat that is in thy brother's eye, and considerest not the beam that is in thine own eye? Or how wilt thou say to thy brother, 
Let me pull out the mote out of thine eye, and behold, a beam is in thine own eye. And then the next verse he says, thou hypocrite. And here's what Jesus is saying. He talks about a moat. Now, we don't talk about moats in 2018. I mean, most of you, you think a moat is like that ditch around a castle when you built that model in sixth grade. That's not a moat. A moat, um, scholars kind of disagree. It's either, it's, it's really small. It would either be a splinter or a particle of sawdust. I mean, like microscopic, tiny. Now, here's the thing. Um, I know those are both smaller objects, but I want you to think about this for a minute. When you get a piece of sawdust or a splinter, heaven forbid, in your eyeball, how many of you know that is a major problem? I don't care how small that object is. I mean, just for an example, Brother Sid, I was mowing on Monday, and we have this craftsman mower in the shed behind the, the mission's house and the uh, the house that Shelby and I live in. And uh, it's better than the other mower we used last season, so I was thankful for that. Then I started the thing up. And very conveniently, between where, like, the grass shoots out and the bag, there's a gap, like, this big. And, you know, it's angled just perfect, where as I'm pushing my lawnmower uh, east and the wind is blowing west, Grass is shooting into my face. I mean, I'm covered with grass. Now, I'm not, I don't have half, I may not uh, be short half a brain. I'm only short a quarter. So I wear sunglasses when I mow, but no sunglasses could stop that stream of grass. I mean, I got grass in my eye. And I mean, I don't know if you've ever gotten something in your eye recently. The whole world stops, doesn't it? Like, I don't care if you're driving. I don't, I mean, hold on, kids. I got something in my eye. I mean, I could be preaching right now. I mean, if I had something in my eye, I'd stop. And I'd get that thing out of there. And then it just ticked me off. It got me upset. Like, I didn't want to mow anymore. And, and so I think some people, when they read this passage, they think Jesus is talking about things that are small. They're microscopic. They're not a big deal. And so we should just leave those smaller things alone. But here's my point tonight is that something that is a moat, whether that be a splinter or a piece of sawdust, how many of you know that it's important that we need to address issues when they are small? I mean, some of you successfully raised godly children, you know that. I mean, you're on the lookout for stuff in their heart and stuff that's going wrong in their lives and little things that are not right in their spirit. And you know what Proverbs says, that, that we need to address things when they're small because if we address them when they're small, they won't become big issues. And so I don't think Jesus is saying, well, we should just, you know, ignore all the moats in life. But here's what Jesus is saying, is that it's foolish for us to ignore major issues in our own life to address lesser issues in another person's life. Because then he talks about the beam. Now, you don't need a dictionary to know what a beam is, right? I don't even have a proper beam because my arms are short and I want to carry this tonight. A beam, literally a stake. I looked it up in a, in a dictionary, uh, a Greek dictionary. It, here was the literal definition. I want to read it correctly because it's just so uh, descriptive. A post sticking out grotesquely. That, that's how they define the beam. So literally, you know, you got the, oh, I got grass in my eye. 
And then you got this guy who's got a beam in his head. I mean, he's literally impaled. So here's what Jesus is saying is, I mean, imagine, Brother Sid, if, if you had the bad fortune of having the craftsman mower on Monday and not me. And you're mowing your backyard, and I don't know, maybe I'm going for a walk or a jog, trying to be healthy. And Sid's there rubbing his eye because he had to deal with the craftsman mower. And I walk up to Sid with a beam sticking out of my head. Hey, man, hey, you need me to go back and get some eye drops out of the house? Or I know my wife has some probably in her purse. I'll just, you know, I'll go back to 215 and I'll get, I'll get some eye drops for you. Hold on a second. That's ridiculous. And, and there's two reasons why that's, that's ridiculous. And I'm only being silly because Jesus is exaggerating a little bit. Sid would be thinking two things. One, you got bigger issues than helping me with my grass in my eye, right? I mean, you are impaled with a two-by-four. And then number two, how helpful can I be to poor Sid with grass in his eye if there's a beam sticking out of my head? How many of you know that's just absolutely wild? And here's what the point Jesus is making. He's saying it's, it's absolutely foolish of you to try and help someone with their lesser spiritual issues if you have a major spiritual issue in your life that you have not dealt with first. Shelby and I, when we, uh, right after we got married, we were helping at a church plant in Shawnee, Oklahoma. Shawnee's about 45 minutes east of Oklahoma City, so we lived in Oklahoma City. We were finishing up Bible college, but every Sunday and every Wednesday we were commuting 45 minutes or so, depending on traffic, to get to Shawnee. We'd have to get there early because we were doing all the music. To get there, run services, tear, you know, finish everything up, and then come back home another 45 minutes and start school the next day. And let me just stop right there. If there are people in this, I know there are church members here tonight who commute. If you're faithful to church and you commute, God bless you. I'm serious about that. Um, and I think some of our church may not appreciate that. Because I've been in other churches where there are multiple people who commute like that. And not all of them are faithful. And it really is taxing. So I remember there were some mornings, you know, we'd leave the house. You know, we'd have to get there early. They didn't have Sunday school. So we'd have to get there probably an hour and 15 minutes before service started. Um, that was our goal anyway. Um, we didn't always get there that early. But we'd have to leave the house at 8.30 or so. And, and if you're a commuter, you know this. If you forget something at home, there's like a point of no return, right? Like, I don't have time to go back. And I remember there were a couple times early on in our ministry there, I can't remember exactly what it was, uh, there were a couple different things, but I, I, I was 20 minutes down the road and I forgot like my sermon notes and I'm preaching Sunday night. Or I forgot like the, mu the, the sheet music for that Sunday morning for the songs I was going to lead, like major stuff. And first of all, I was upset because I had to go back and other times I was upset because I couldn't go back. And uh, to my shame, I'm embarrassed about this, um, I kind of turned into like Hulk Collins for a second. <laughs> I, uh, you know, got mad and, you know, pound the steering wheel a couple times and let out a yell of frustration and 
here's Shelby sitting all awkward in the back. Like, what do you do when your husband's throwing a hissy fit, you know? And that happened probably two or three times. And then it happened to Shelby. Shelby Collins, you know her? You know the sweet one? Yeah. We had, a, we had a church potluck on a Sunday night, and I don't know what amazing creation she had, but it, it was left on the kitchen table, and uh, it didn't get to Shawnee, and we've realized that, and we were past the point of no return. And how many of you know it's kind of awkward to show up to a small church potluck with no food, <laughs> especially when you're, like, kind of on staff? And I remember Shelby, in a much lesser way than Hulk Collins, kind of, you know, you know, Maybe on the side, on the door. Oh, I can't believe that. And I remember very distinctly this moment. Because I was about, as a husband, the spiritual leader, I was about to say, Shelby, you know, I don't think that your response to that is, you know, appropriate. I think maybe you're being a little bit taught. And I remember so clearly, I was about, I was like, you know, about to say something. And, I, and it's like God brought me to those moments. I was still behind the steering wheel like I was a couple weeks ago. And here, I, here God brought to my mind, you fool, you're over there looking at her moat, small little expression of frustration, and you've got an anger problem. I'm serious. And I was convicted about that. You know, I, I wish that wasn't the case in our homes. But how many of you parents know that it could be real easy to say to your kids, son, you better respect your mother. Or don't talk to your mother like that. All the while, your kid's looking back at you and saying, dad, I've looked at the way you've talked to mom the last couple weeks. Mom, I've seen how you've gone behind dad's back when I asked you the same question I asked him. Could be that yeah, I'm grateful this is in the spirit of our church all the time. Could be someone walks in. Man, I can't believe they'd wear that to church. Are you kidding me? Do they not, like, discipline their kids ever? Are they going to take, I mean, the number's up there. Get your kid, you know. There's a nursery over there. Take care of your kids. And maybe sometimes we don't think about this, but while we're looking at their moat, and we're looking at their splinter, maybe we've overlooked a beam in our own life that we're more concerned about other people lining up to our standard and other people lining up to what we think church should be like, yet we totally ignore that God has a heart for lost people, and we totally ignore that there's a spirit of pride in our own heart that's causing us to be so critical of other church people. Are you with me tonight? Man, this is right down our alley. Or it could be that, man, you, I mean, I, I've been in these conversations like, man, my, I don't know if you've met my boss, but my boss is a jerk. And he says this, and man, I, I tried to ask for this day off, and he said this, and he did this. And, and, and there's a lot of people that are so ready to walk in their boss's office and point out a moat. All the while, their boss is going to be looking at an employee with a two-by-four sticking out of their head because they're the ones who take the most sick days. And they're the ones who have a bad attitude all the time at work. And they're the ones who are always critical of other employees. Are you with me tonight? Hey, listen, don't you, 
it's unwise for you to, to give correction, to give feedback, to give judgment to another person if you haven't first looked at the beam that's in your own eye. And we could talk about all sorts of relatively minor issues tonight, whether it's standards here or music preferences there, and those really don't matter. When we think about the major things that God is concerned about in our own life, because I think the problem with a lot of Christians and maybe it's something about the environment that they get put in sometimes, is that a lot of Christians are more concerned about other people conforming to their standards than they are with their life conforming to God's standard. I found that the most, judgment, most judgmental people are people who have never considered self-judgment. Is there something in my life that needs to be dealt with? We could say the same thing to Bosses, man, my employees are lazy. Maybe it's because they keep looking back at a boss that has a beam in his eye every time he corrects them. And here's the tricky thing about beams. It's, it's so ironic, isn't it? That we can have a two-by-four sticking out of our head, and we are completely oblivious to it. How many of you know somebody who's completely oblivious to their beam? Here's the thing tonight. If you think you don't have one, the testimony of this room says you probably do. You just don't know it. Just like Peter, he rebuked Jesus, and Jesus said, get behind me, Satan. You don't know what you're doing. Why? Peter had a blind spot. And a lot of times, beams show up in our blind spots. And the reason step number two is so important because we have this tendency to overlook these beams. So here's number two. Second sign you're not ready to give judgment or correction is number two, you have not humbly searched and removed the sins from your own heart. You've not humbly searched and removed the sins from your own heart. Look at verse number five with me. Jesus is talking to the same person who's got the beam in his head. Thou hypocrite, first cast out the beam out of thine own eye. So here's what Jesus is saying. Would you quit worrying about their splinter and just get rid of the beam? He says, cast it out of your own eye. And, and I love what Jesus says here because a lot of times we can respond to a message like this and say, well, I'm not perfect, so I'll, I'll just never correct anybody. I'll never correct my kids because I know how bad I am. That's not what Jesus is saying. He's saying, you can give correction to people and God doesn't expect you to be perfect about it, but you better be somebody who's humbly searched your own heart first. That before you ever consider about trying to get somebody else's life in line, you ought to have a habit of making sure that your life is in line with the Lord Jesus Christ. Um, and, and, and a lot of times, again, like I said, we don't always know what the beam is, do we? And this is why I, I've, I've been so convicted and challenged. We had a Sunday school lesson a couple weeks back on that psalm that says, Search me, O God, and try me. Search me, O oh God, know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts and see if there be any wicked way in me. We ought to be praying that, church, all the time. Because the truth is that if we don't get feedback from God, we will never know what some of those beams are. And I'm thankful tonight that the Holy Spirit knows exactly what every single issue is in our life. And if we just simply open our heart to God and say, God, search my heart try it, know what wicked ways in, are in me, and tell me about them, God will answer that prayer. He'll answer that prayer every single time. 
Sometimes we might even have to go so far as to ask a spiritual mentor or a spiritual leader, hey, hey, can you, can you tell me if there's anything I'm missing in my life? If there's something that I'm overlooking, are there some spiritual issues that maybe I've gotten calloused about, but that you see? Hey, listen, God will give that person wisdom to point those things out in your life. You know what I think verse number five is saying? Is that the reason so many Christians have unresolved spiritual issues is because they're more focused on judging other people than themselves. I wish the culture of every church was not let me criticize other people, but if it was hyper-reflective. God, use this sermon to convict me rather than God, I hope you speak to that person. God, I wish you would challenge me in this area rather than, boy, that person could really do better in that area. You know what else I found is that, that your children, your, your employees, people under your leadership in ministry, whatever the case may be, they'll have a lot more respect for somebody who's humble and honest about their own faults than they will for somebody who hypocritically tries to cover them up. Are you with me? I mean, all of us have more respect for that type of person. Now I want you to look at the second half of verse number five. So he says, cast out the beam out of thine own eye. Now pay attention to the last half. This is really interesting to me. And then he says, and then, and then shalt thou see clearly to cast out the moat out of thy brother's eye. Jesus is trying to help us here. You know what he's saying? He's saying, when you cast out the beam, you can then be better at giving correction. That we're better at correcting people if we first dealt with the issues in our own life. So verses 1 and 2 is not Jesus saying, don't ever judge people. He's just trying to help us with how to do it the right way. And how many of you know that when your heart is clouded with sin, you're a worse parent? You, you, you don't understand your kids. You're quick to judge. Quick to discipline. How many of you know when there's sin in your heart and sin in your life, you're more hypercritical of people? But, but God has a way, doesn't he? That when we let him remove those sins from our lives, that we become more empathetic in understanding, patient, long-suffering, don't we? And here's what Jesus is saying. If you just deal with the issues in your life, actually you'll be better at giving spiritual correction because you'll have the right heart in doing it. I, I, I think overall in this passage, you know what I'm just burdened about and impressed with? Is that God really values spiritual accountability. I mean, that's why we have the church I mean, we, us preachers, we like to quote, forsake not the assembling of yourselves together. You know what that verse is about? It's not really about preaching as much as it's about spiritual accountability. To provoke one another into love and good works. That's why God set up the church. It's because everyone in this building needs spiritual accountability. That's why God set up the government. Because we all need accountability. We need someone to make sure we're not going 65 by a school, right? Why did God establish the home? Because we all need accountability, not just the kids, but you, husbands, you need accountability from your wife. You need accountability from your husband's wives, and so God really values accountability. But here's the point tonight. He values it so much that he doesn't want us to mess it up. 
Because when we mess up spiritual accountability, there's a lot of hurt people in the path of that tornado. You need to humbly search and remove any sins from your heart. And here's the third sign that you're not ready to judge somebody. Number three, you want to correct somebody who's not receptive to the truth. Look at verse number six. This verse kind of sounds weird at first, like, why was Jesus just throwing something in there randomly? Here's what he says, verse six. Give not that which is holy unto the dogs. Like my prime rib or what? What are you talking about, Jesus? Then he says, neither cast ye your pearls before the swine, lest they trample them under their feet and turn again and rend you. What does that mean? I read that verse a lot of times. For years, and I had no idea what it meant. Um, the, the idea of dogs and pigs, Jesus was using a cultural reference, which in their day would have meant somebody who was not a Jew. Those were unclean animals. And so, um, and again, it's hard in English. I don't think these are quite as cruel when Jesus would have said them as we think. Um, but that's, that's how it comes out in English. Um, so it's a, a Jewish reference to someone who's a Gentile. They called them dogs and pigs. They still weren't like flattering words by any means, but it was a reference to somebody who is not one of God's people. Are you with me? So then Jesus says, don't give that which is holy, or don't cast your pearls before these people who are not God's people. What, what is that talking about the pearls and the What's holy? Uh, Both of those references, I believe, are talking about God's word. And here's what Jesus is saying, and and I want you to pay attention to this. He's saying this in verse 6. Don't waste your time giving spiritual correction to somebody whose heart is not ready to receive it. I want to say that again. Verse 6 means this. Don't waste your time giving spiritual correction to somebody whose heart is not ready to receive it. And there's two different types of group of people that Jesus would be referring to. Number one, he'd be referring to hard-hearted and unrepentant Christians. There's all sorts of principles in the book of Proverbs about the scorner, right? And we, we see that those principles in the New Testament, all sorts of different forms, that there are people, even though they know Jesus, and they accepted him in their life at one time, that they can continue so far down a path of sin that they want absolutely nothing to do with God. I mean, we all know people like that, unfortunately. And here's what Jesus is saying. Listen, as much as your heart may even be burdened for them, or it could be a prideful motive, like you want them to, you want them to really hear what you have to say, you are unwise if you're going to correct somebody who's demonstrated they don't care what God says. You're unwise. They may be wrong, They may be flaunting their sin, but don't cast the pearls before the swine. That's what Jesus is saying. They don't care what you have to say. They don't care what God has to say. So don't waste your time giving them spiritual correction. Because here's the thing. Here's the thing. As much as you may be trying to help people like that, you're probably going to do more harm than good. I mean, there's plenty of people here who used to live a prodigal life. And you, you know as well as I do, people who just berated you, they just made you want to turn away from God that much more. Are you with me? I mean, that's exactly how people respond to that. But then I think Jesus is also talking about unbelievers. 
And here's the thing I think we all need to be cautious about is that we need to be really careful about spiritually correcting people who don't even have the Holy Spirit in them. I know that sounds common sense, but actually it's really, really common among believers to do that. Like, tell me in the Bible where it's really that important that you correct unbelievers about social issues. I can't find it. I mean, you can have a political reason for doing so, but you can't have a Bible reason for doing so. Why? They don't have the Holy Spirit. They don't care what God has to say. They'll pull out the Bible about it. They don't care. And you're unwise to do it. You're not doing anything that's, that's really, truly helpful because here's the thing. Their problem, their bigger problem is not dressing right or behaving morally. That's not their problem. Their problem is that they need Jesus Christ and everything you do and say towards an unbeliever ought to be pushing towards that end goal of causing them to want to accept Jesus. Are you with me tonight? I don't care how passionate you are about social issues. Your attention is much better directed if you're trying to push Jesus towards them without sounding crude or forceful that that should be your main goal, not correcting them about a lifestyle that doesn't line up with the Bible. Their lifestyle will never be right with the Bible until they've accepted Jesus. Because even if they do get their lifestyle right and it looks more like the Bible, God will be disgusted with it because their good works will be as filthy rags in his presence. we got to be more about Jesus than we are about giving correction to unbelievers. So how do you know when you're ready to spiritually correct somebody? Well, one, you dealt with the beam before you focused on their splinter. Number two, you've humbly searched and removed any sins from your own heart. And then three, you're ready to correct somebody if first you've considered whether or not they're even receptive to the truth. Because we got a free pass from Jesus. If they don't care about what God has to say, then we should not be saying what God has to say. Are you with me tonight? God has commanded us. Just as strong as the command, judge not, are the commands I read earlier about rebuking your children, chastening your children, correcting those who err from the truth. God is just as passionate about those things as he is about this. So we're unbalanced if we think God doesn't ever want us to correct somebody. But we're also unbalanced if we fly off the handle and correct everybody just because we think we know what the Bible says. And what Jesus is saying tonight is simply this. Don't judge someone else until you first judged yourself. Every head bowed and every eye closed tonight. 